Hey everybody, welcome to episode 53 of The Dream Life. Do you believe in miracles? I think after today's episode, you just might. Today's guest is Dr. Dawn Moselem and she has an amazing story. Dawn has been through very big health ordeals from cancer to heart failure and transplant and she did it all with this strong, amazing, positive spirit. And I cannot wait for you to really meet her and fall in love with her as I have because she's inspirational. Okay, before we get into the episode though, we have to just give a big shout out to Namawell for the J2 juicer because as you know, I love my machine and it, it has upgraded my juicing experience and I want you to experience the same if you're looking for a new juicer. So if you go into the show notes, you can grab 10% off. Also, we are weeks away now from my retreat here in Portugal and so if you still want to come, there are a couple of spots left and you can book with us if you go into the show notes. But remember, this is a beautiful, comprehensive holiday to get to know Northern Portugal's nature, beautiful cities like Porto, have amazing food, get treated and pampered and really just spoiled and have the best time of your life. So I really hope to see you there. Now, without further ado, let's go into this beautiful episode. Welcome, Dawn. Hi, Dawn. Good rising. Thank you for joining me on The Green Life. How are you? Good morning, Chantal. Terrific. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to spend this morning with you. My pleasure. I absolutely love your story and also love your energy. Now we follow each other on Instagram, so I see that you're doing so many wonderful things. And I have never in my life met anybody with such energy, like spirit, you know? It's just unbelievable. So thank you for that. Oh, you know, I think I have to thank my parents. I really do. I just had such a beautiful childhood and I just remember as a child being very happy. And, you know, there is, a genetic component of happiness about 40 percent is genetic and mm. i think i have a dominant happy gene i'm pretty sure of it uh but i just feel so blessed to been given the life i've had and to be able to have that strong resilience and just ability to really grasp on to some of those um trials and tribulations and adversity and use them as a strength to challenge me to to grow through those so it's been it's been a real blessing Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I must say, you're the first U.S. client or U.S. guest that I see so early. What time is it where you are? Uh, it's 6.30 a.m. Okay, 6.30. You look you look beautiful. You have, I mean, people are watching this on YouTube, they can see you. You look like you've been up for hours. You have everything done. So tell me, what time do you get up in the morning? <laughs> well... I set my alarm for 4.07 every morning. That's For whatever reason, that just works for me. But I typically get up around 3.55, because <laughs> I'm super excited to start my day. Wow. But you know, it's funny, uh, Sunday we had a marathon here in Jacksonville. So that was super exciting event. It was so energizing. But I've been sleeping in a little bit the last two days. So I felt good. So if my body needs rest, I'll try to really encourage myself to go back to bed to get a few extra hours of sleep. But it's hard. I really like to spring up early and, and start my day. And I like to try to get to bed a little bit earlier. I think it's challenging. I, I mean, sleep is one of the pillars of lifestyle medicine that is the hardest for me. Mm. It just is because I have so much zest for life and I just want to keep on going and I'm a high energy person. But we can't overlook the fact that we need that restorative 
aspect of our day. And so the sleep is so important. So I really, really try to have a nice wind down process and really embrace the importance of getting that seven hours of sleep, but I'm not always successful with it. So I'll, I'll kind of wind down on social media when I find that I'm not getting that seven hours and I won't even look at it so I can get to bed and get good sleep and, and get those seven hours. So I hear you. I mean, I'm a morning person too. I love that early morning and the brightness of the morning. I really feel like I'm wasting my day if I get up late, even if it's eight o'clock because, you know, I've been tired. I haven't slept well. I feel terrible. I feel like, no, I missed my two hours that I could have had to myself. Chantal, I completely agree. I just love that time of stillness and quiet and peace. And it's a time that you that many people who wake up in the morning, they have a particular ritual. You know, like I do the same exact thing every morning and I yeah. love coffee. So I cannot wait to have my first cup of coffee with soy milk. I get so excited about that. So I've already had two cups, so I'm done for the day. And now I'm on to my herbal tea. So. I love that. <laughs> Watch out! She's energized. <laughs> She's energized. All right. I haven't had a chance to exercise yet, so I wasn't able to get rid of that energy. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share it all with you guys. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, so well, people if people don't know your story, now we talked about your happy gene and your resilience, and they don't know why this is actually important in the whole story. You have a very fascinating story, and one that I really found I, I was very touched by because. A lot of people that go through what you went through very easily get into that um, victim mentality. And so everything around them is negative because, you know, we start not believing in ourselves anymore. That definitely kills mitochondria energy because our emotions are so important for our um, for our body. And you just have such perseverance and such positivity. And for I was very I was in awe of your story and the way that you you went through it. So can you just start from the beginning? What where did this journey start? And you know, how how did you find facing your health issues, starting to be a doctor on top of it? Um how did you face them? How did you go through them finding that strength in your path? Thank you for asking me that question. And you know, it was so interesting because as a young child, I was just tickled at the thought of longevity. And, and you've probably heard me say this before, but when people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would say I wanted to be on a Smucker's jar. And so in the United <laughs> States on the Today Show, they would always celebrate the 100th year and 100th year birthdays. And they would put these amazing, vital 100-year-olds on these Smucker's jars. And so when I was four and five, I thought that was the coolest thing to see someone who lives to be 100 and they're flourishing. And so that's why I would tell people I want to be in a Smucker's jar. My four-year-old brain thought, oh my gosh, I want to live to be like that. So it's really interesting, right? So a few years, you know, move forward, I started to understand this concept. So I thought, okay, I'm going to tell people I want to live to be 100 and be a doctor. Uh, so health was fundamentally very important to me at a very young age. I took strong interest in elementary school, but it was super cool because my parents lived a very healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So my mom always cooked, you know, whole foods. She ground her own wheat. It was, we had gardens. We, you know, we did have some animal products with chickens and whatnot, but we had those from a farmer that lived up the street from us. So we lived a very healthy lifestyle. We had a lot of faith. We were raised, I was raised Roman Catholic, so we had belief in God. So we had that spiritual component that was very important in our family. And we just had a lot of love. 
in our family, in our extended family. So I really believe that when I started to experience some adversity in medical school, that I had such a solid foundation and loving support that there was no fear. Mm. And so, you know, it was about three months into medical school that I started not feeling well. And this was the first time in my life that I had been unwell. Otherwise, I, honestly, I don't really remember ever taking an antibiotic or ever being sick. I was just a very healthy child. So I saw several doctors because I was having shortness of breath. And, you know, after the third visit to a doctor, they said it was in my head which was crazy because I was very athletic. I would climb mountains regularly. I would run seven, 14 miles a day, super athletic, you know, young woman. And I just wasn't me. I couldn't even walk 10 feet. And to have a doctor say it's in your head, you, you start to really rethink things. You're like, is, am I having stress? What's going on? And then it was November 22nd, 2020, that I collapsed on my way home from medical school. I was taken to emergency. You mean 2000? 2000? 2000, thank you. <laughs> 2020. I thought you said that. It's 6.30 in the morning, my friend. Yeah. 2000, thank you. Thank you for paying attention to that. 2000, it, it doesn't seem like yesterday. It does seem like a long time ago, so I'm happy I said that. So in uh, November 22nd, 2000, I had collapsed coming back from, from classes, and I was taken to the hospital, and there was a 15-centimeter mass wrapped around my heart. And I was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it was a diffuse B-cell lymphoma, so it was growing very rapidly. And so, you know, that was unbelievable. You know, my, my dad flew in to be with me at this time. The doctor who was on call because it was Thanksgiving weekend, mm. he was, you know, not as warm and loving as, 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 a, as a young woman and a family would hope to be. And so he, he didn't really fill my heart with hope, that's for sure. And he was kind of uh, quite negative. And, you know, they had even said that I only would have months to live if I didn't do aggressive treatment and we needed to start the treatment immediately. And my heart was really struggling. So they had to do an urgent surgery and we started chemo and I started feeling better. So I did several months of, of high dose chemotherapy with something that's called CHOP chemotherapy. And because it was stage four cancer, they needed to do a bone marrow transplant. And, you know, it was so interesting because I remember early on in the diagnosis, they had said I needed to quit medical school. I needed to get my affairs in order. Like, You're messing with the wrong girl. You know, you know, so that kind of like triggered this really intrinsic motivation to say, you're wrong. This is how we're going to do it. And I attained my vitality all through chemotherapy. Mm. I didn't like lose. A, I didn't like feel sick at all. I, I just don't remember that. I remember my existence feeling so heightened you know so if i would be taking a walk outside or if i would be climbing the mountain like that crisp breeze that would touch my skin mm. i would be so in tune with it in a bird that no one else would see or hear i would hear just this most beautiful sound yeah. and i just loved people i was so connected with people so it just raised me this very heightened level of existence at 26 years old it was a gift it was like this gift and his teacher of life. It gives me chills to talk about it. It was so beautiful. So I went on to my bone marrow transplant and back in, in this was in 2001. Back in 2001, it was very different how we did bone marrow transplants then. You were kind of, you know, I've described it before, like, but the girl in the bubble, you know, they drop your immune system down to zero with very high dose chemotherapy and radiation. And so you're in the hospital for weeks 
and you're supposed to be really sick. But again, I would look out to the other people and you're in these isolated rooms, glass doors, and I would see how, how unwell they looked. And I just felt like I looked great. I look back at pictures now and I'm like, oh, I actually looked awful, but I didn't feel sick. I still felt very vital. My medical team was so supportive. They would bring a, they had a bicycle in my room so I could exercise in my room when there was other people out in the corridors when I couldn't be out. But every morning at 4 a.m., I woke up at 4 a.m. back then too, they had a bike in the main area that overlooked the mountains of Arizona so I could see the sunrise. So I would go and I would ride the bike uh, early in the morning outside in the corridor area. And it was a really good experience for me. I listened to very meditative music. I always brought colorful clothes with me to the hospital so I would not feel like a patient. I would feel you know, like myself, my medical school, my colleagues would visit me, bring me my homework. I would take my tests in the hospital. So I kept life normal. So normal that I even set that alarm at 4 a.m. to get up. And I think that was the trick. So went on to finish radiation therapy as an outpatient and I was cured. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And so a few years went by and it was 20, uh, it was 2002. And again, I started not to feel as well. And they had thought that perhaps the cancer came back and I, and I did too. And they were doing a bunch of tests. I was nauseated. I was losing weight. So there was concern. Maybe it even went to the brain. Turns mm-hmm. out I'm pregnant. It was a total miracle. Hold on. When did you get married in this? <laughs> okay. Yeah, when so did, where had, did you meet your husband? When did you get married? Yeah. So I actually met my husband before I was diagnosed with cancer. And it was, it's kind of an interesting story. His name was Charles. So he was older than me. And so I was dating other men at the time and Charles. And then I get diagnosed with cancer. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't. I'm just going to have friends, right? But it was so fascinating how people come into our lives when they come into our lives Mm. because he came into my life at a time that i really needed that like substantial wisdom you know and he really stayed by my side and he was there with me um when i was diagnosed he came in to visit me because he had actually lived in florida and i was in arizona Mm. so he came in to visit me and he stayed in close contact with me and we continued to grow our relationship during that time of the chemotherapy. But I had other very important special friends and I just dated during that time. I just wanted to have fun. You know, I didn't want to have any constraints on what I should or shouldn't do. So we continued to grow our friendship and we got engaged shortly after uh, I had my bone marrow transplant. And then we were given this gift of being able to grow our family. And it was the most amazing thing that we didn't think we would ever be able to have yeah so, so good point there because a lot of people that i have that have uh, chemotherapy are told that they might not be able to have children most likely um because obviously and that just kills everything um so that is definitely a miracle um and but i'm not surprised that of all people that actually this happened to be you because you took care of your body so much that you know it's just now come of um how you supported your body through it but i do have a question about um the 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 therapy that you were doing so you went to medical school you became an osteopath um but you went you wanted to study naturopathy now uh, you know from my from my studies and my experience obviously we look at allopathic medicine and naturopathic naturopathic medicine in very different ways i do uh personally agree that in some cases modern medicine allopathic medicine is life-saving which obviously you can you're a testament to 
Um, but you will find a lot of people that, um, a lot of doctors that have, you know, they are more on the naturopathic side, um, don't like um, chemotherapy because obviously it doesn't only kill the cancer cells, it actually, you know, damages all the cells in the body. So if you're not starting from a point like you were, where you're healthy and looking after yourself, that can cause more damage than anything after because your body's just unable to pick up and that happens a lot. What's your, what was your view coming from wanting to be more holistic in your approach to then, you know, realizing that actually I need to do this because it is actually a life-saving choice. Uh, was there any conversation in your head about that or any, you know, any thoughts? You know, it's so interesting, the path that our lives take, because when I was in undergraduate studies, I went to Ohio State University. I studied exercise physiology and nutrition. Mm. And after that, you know, again, I loved exercise. I love centenarians or people who are 100. So I went on to do research at the Cooper Institute for Aerobics Research in Dallas, Texas with Dr. Ken Cooper and Dr. Stephen Blair. And my research there was on centenarians, people who were 100 who were still running marathons. And I, I did that for a few years as well as biomechanics, how to maintain muscle mass in extreme situations like anti-gravitational environments. So I love this stuff. <laughs> but I worked with a lot of doctors there. And, you know, they introduced me to the concept of naturopathy. Otherwise, I had never heard of it. Okay. So after my studies or during my studies at the Cooper Institute, this is when I was really starting to say, okay, it's ready for me to go to medical school. What kind of medical school am I going to go to? So I actually went to naturopathic school first. Okay. It was amazing. So I went to naturopathic school in Arizona called the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine. And during that time, I realized that perhaps it was going to be a little challenging. This was back, you know, in 1996, 1997. So, you know, that was many years before naturopathy was quite as accepted as it is now. And so you were very limited where you could practice. And so mm -hmm. I got, started to get a little nervous. Like, what if I end up going through this four years of education because it's four years of training, just like traditional medical school. And what if I'm limited to only practicing in these few states? Yeah. And so I got a little concerned. So I transitioned my training from naturopathic school to osteopathic school, which was a perfect fit for me because the osteopathic school that was in Arizona was extremely holistic in nature. Arizona, just by nature, is, is a pretty mm. holistic you know, viewpoint for many, many people. And, and there's that desire in, in the patients that are seek that out. So the, the doctors and the medical establishments really, I feel, uphold uh, a, little, a little bit more of a holistic way of practice, at least back then. I think now it's kind of equalized throughout the country. But I went to osteopathic school and it was just a wonderful experience, but so great that I had that naturopathic background. I met a really amazing doctor when in naturopathic school. His name was Dr. Dan Rubin. In fact, I was emailing with Dr. Dan Rubin yesterday and he is uh, basically the founder of the naturopathic oncology uh, board certification. So there is a whole group of naturopathic oncologists out there that have some allopathic training so that they really know how to kind of integrate their therapy. So it's not mm -hmm. quite alternative in nature, it's a little more integrative. You know, when I think of alternative medicine, I think of people who say no to chemotherapy and they only want to do alternative routes. And I'm certainly not here to judge, but that does make me a little bit concerned because I think when we can blend both things together is when maybe that's the best way to approach cure and that's the most, that's the best way to harmonize, you know, cancer period. But I meet this incredible doctor, Dr. Dan Rubin, during my training in naturopathic school. 
And then I get diagnosed with my own cancer. So guess who I call? <laughs> Dr. Dan Rubin. And so it was really amazing. And I really applaud the doctors at Good Samaritan Hospital in Arizona, as well as City of Hope, who did my bone marrow transplant. Because when I shared with them that I really wanted to integrate Dr. Dan Rubin's approach to care, they said, no problem. They didn't ask mm -hmm. any questions because they knew that he had had adequate training to make sure that he would not give me anything that would harm me, mm. only things that would help to support my body. So it gives me chills to say that because in my email I sent to Dr. Rubin yesterday, I sent him a picture from the marathon this week and I said, I am alive. I am pretty sure because of you. Aww. And he's like, wow. I, I mean, that, that probably feels pretty good for him. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm alive. I, I was able to bring another life onto earth because of that. And I've been able to help so many people because I'm alive as, my, as a physician. But Dr. Rubin was so special. I mean, he would do labs for me. And I remember calling me on my cell phone himself. And I was like, he called me at 9 o'clock at night with lab results. He does that for all his patients. And I'm wow. thinking, what doctor does this, you know? So he even taught me to be the best doctor I could possibly be. So, so much good came out of that, that particular physician. Mm -hmm. um, so you're right. I think that there's such a need for integrative management of cancer patients because these chemotherapies are toxic. And unfortunately, I did experience one of those major toxicities that we'll talk about. Uh, and I don't think there was any way around it. You know, my cancer was so aggressive. Yeah. I think a lot of people step back and say, well, wait a minute, Dawn, why did you get cancer? Here you said you live this healthy lifestyle and you get stage four cancer. And I don't know. I don't have that answer. You know, as a child, I would I was a I was kind of a tomboy, maybe a, li a little bit, a little a little bit of tomboy. So I'd play in this creek behind my house that was a runoff from a field. And so maybe I, I spent some time in some pesticide or herbicide filled waterways. Very, yeah. very likely. And I would spend hours, we're talking like six to eight hours every Saturday and Sunday in that water hunting for crawdads and stuff for years. I love yeah. that stuff. So it's possible I had some toxic exposure that my body, you know, just couldn't uh, counteract. And then you, you enter medical school and it's a time of stress. You're not sleeping as well. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't probably eating as well as I needed to at that time, though I was still eating pretty healthy, but my body was, was taking one insult after another. And I have patients come to me all the time, you know, and some of these patients are very healthy like I was. And I say, how did this happen? I was doing everything right. And, you know, I don't know that we always know, but I think when it comes to cancer, it's kind of like a baseball game, right? It's kind of like three strikes and you're out. And if you have a little bit of a genetic component, you have a little environmental component, and then maybe you just have, you know, a lifestyle related um, aspect that maybe wasn't as optimized as possible, maybe the cancer occurs. Yeah. Or maybe it's just supposed to happen. You know, maybe it was just in our deck of cards. And for me, cancer was the best thing that happened to me. I would never trade it in. It was such a time of growth. And to acknowledge the possible, you know, the fact that when in Western medicine, we say someone only has X amount of time to live or, or maybe there could be a bad outcome and just to prove them wrong uh, because you really took care of yourself is such a victory and such a triumph. So mm -hmm. it was amazing. And so I really encourage my patients to try to work through that question they have in their mind. Why did this happen to me? And to reframe it and pivot it so that you can try to accept it in a way that it's going to guide you towards transformative change, meaning and purpose in your life. I love that. And so that's very, very important. But if a patient doesn't accept that diagnosis, and they remain turbulent around it, that is gonna really interfere with good treatment outcomes, I feel. Yeah.
same thing when I have patients coming in to see me and they hate the thought of doing chemo and they don't want to do chemo. And I see the oncology team kind of fighting with them because they have to do chemo. It's kind of like, all right, time out. <laughs> you know, what, what do you want to do? What is your heart telling you to do? It, it should not be a doctor's ego in the room to feel like they're defeated because they can't convince a patient to do chemo. It's our job as physicians to educate and inform patients about the benefit of traditional chemotherapy. But if for some reason that's not resonating right with the patient, it's not a failure of the medical system that we didn't change that person's mind. It's just that patient's wish and we should respect that. But I really hope to inspire patients by my story to let them understand that yes, there is some toxicities with the treatment, but in an effort to cure disease, I really feel that blending that Western medicine with alternative and integrative approaches that are safe with low possibilities of harm is the best way to go. And so that's why I love what I do. I love my job so much. I could work all day long. If I didn't have to sleep for my own health, I wouldn't. (laughs) But it's so critical um, to really look at that whole person wellness. It really, really is. Yeah. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate it. Um, and we're going to talk about your work at the end. I, I, I want to carry on with the story. So you met Charles before your diagnosis and then throughout uh, your um, healing from cancer, you got married. And now you are two years in after uh, healing and you're pregnant. Yes. Okay, let's carry on from there. So it was just it was so amazing to have another human growing in your body after going through this time of, of, of cancer treatment. It was just like you were fully alive. And I was still in medical school. So it's like my life was perfect. And I remember, you know, when it was time to deliver her, how difficult it was, though. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I respect women so much. <laughs> women don't complain about how hard this uh, childbirth thing is, but it is hard. And so a few weeks after I delivered Sophia, it made a little bit of sense to me why that childbirth felt so difficult. I started to get very short of breath and I felt just like I did when I was diagnosed with cancer. And I started to feel like I was gonna collapse again. So I was taken to the emergency room and I was in cardiogenic shock. And I mean, you know, leading up to this, it it got so bad that I couldn't bathe her. I couldn't hold her. So my mom was just pivotal with really helping care for my daughter. And so when I got to the emergency room, my heart just was not pumping properly. And they were worried that the cancer was back because there was so much fluid in the left side of my lung. They did an ultrasound of the heart and it was only beating at 8%. You know, so I was diagnosed with advanced heart failure, secondary to the chemotherapy and radiation, or it even could have been from the childbirth because there is a peripartum, you know, cardiomyopathy syndrome. It could have been kind of a blend of everything. You know, most women aren't able to get pregnant after that significant form of of cancer therapy. And I got pregnant quite quickly. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I could get pregnant because the doctor said it wasn't going to ever be possible. They said, you won't be able to have kids. And then here it happens. And so there's been other reports of women like me who, who got pregnant over that period of time, very close to their, their life-saving cancer treatment, who also ended up with some of this cardiac strain. So it's something of, of great research efforts. And that's why I feel it's so important for young people, especially when they undergo cancer treatment, to be part of an academic medical center so that they can really help to optimize your care and follow you so that we learn. You know, that's the only way we'll ever we'll ever learn. And so I am part of a study, and it's been very interesting that they do think there may be some shared genetic potential between 
cardiac failure secondary to chemotherapy agents, as well as peripartum cardiomyopathy. So maybe in the future, we'll find out that we need to instruct women, wait, no childbearing for five years or 10 years or whatever that magic number may be after cancer treatment, we need to let your heart recover. But back then we really weren't quite as in tuned to the impact that cancer treatment has on the heart. And now there's a whole section of cardiology research and of practitioners at Mayo Clinic we have a cardio-oncology department. We have doctors that see patients who have had cancer treatment just to optimize their heart health. So it's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I get diagnosed with advanced heart failure and the doctors at this particular hospital where I went to the emergency room, and this was in 2003, had said that I was gonna need an urgent transplant. And so I was getting ready to start my training at Mayo Clinic in Florida. So I got a second opinion there. And I remember Dr. Dan Yip, I mean, he just filled my heart with such love and hope and knowing that everything was going to be okay. And he's like, you know, Don, we don't have to think about transplant yet. We're going to help your heart with medications. When you need procedures, we'll do procedures. And if you need a transplant in the future, hey, we have that. But let's not jump to that rate yet. So they, I started cardiac rehab. I absolutely loved cardiac rehab because I got to start exercising again. They started these medications and my heart slowly improved some, you know, up to like the 16, 17% range which was enough. You know, my body was so well, you know, taken care of over those years that I was able to be functional with an 18% ejection fraction. I couldn't run, I couldn't exercise in the way that I used to enjoy, but that was okay. I could hold my baby again. I could bathe her. I could go back to my residency training. So life was back on again. I felt, I felt pretty good. So everything was pretty good until around 2007. And I started to have a decline. So I had to take some time off of my training. They did an investigational device in my chest called a biventricular pacer. And so you won't believe what happened. So then in 2008, both Charles and I woke up early. It was just something we did. You know, my daughter woke up early. We were like this family, you know, pouring out. We were like, and the whole lights were on. We were smiling, happy life. And it was getting late. And it was, you know, like eight o'clock in the morning and he still wasn't up yet. And I just thought that seemed so peculiar. And I remember feeling like this sick feeling in my stomach, like, like this knowing that something's not right. And so I went into the bedroom and he had died in his sleep. Oh. And on this particular night before we went, before he went to bed, he said, you know what, honey, go be with the baby tonight. So, you know, I think back and I just wonder, maybe he wasn't feeling well and he didn't want to tell me. I don't know, you know, and all I know is when I walked in, it was just like, you know, I I shared with you early on that I had this, I have this happy gene and nothing like pulls me down. Well, how I would describe it is I walked in and I knew I wasn't going to be able to resuscitate him. And I felt like my, my vital existence just free fell. It was like at the bottom ground Mm -hmm. level and it didn't go below that. Like I never got depressed, but I was flat. Like I couldn't elevate myself for like a full year. I remember anything with stimulation was just like too much for me to handle. If I was in the car, I couldn't listen to music. Like it was just too much. I just had a B. And it was a time in my life, you know, I had been raised in a, in a Catholic family. We had strong belief in God, but I never really had to put it to the test. You know, even during cancer, it's like, it's easy when you're the patient, you you know, you can kind of take care of things yourself, but this was like external to me. I didn't know how to 
help myself during this time. But I would just look in Sophia's eyes and knew I had to be strong for her. How old was Sophia? She was five. Okay, and how old were you? I was 34. 34, and Charles? He was 54. So he was 20 years older. Yeah, okay. he was older than me. And did he have, what happened? How, did you find out how he passed? It was sudden cardiac death, actually. You know, he had had a strong family history of coronary artery disease. He had had some little subtle red flags, but you know, it was interesting. All the attention was on me because we thought I was going to be the one to die, not him. So we didn't really focus on that too much. Mm. And it was just so challenging. And it really drew me closer to my faith in a way that I, I really contemplated the meaning of life mm. and life after our time here on earth and just embracing that thought of heaven. And so for me, that was my grace, was that thought of heaven and knowing that my husband was okay. And, you know, did very special things with Sophia during that time. And she actually did very well during that time. Children are so resilient. It's a, it was much harder on me than knowing that she wasn't going to have a father. Um, and I think it's interesting. I think it's harder on her now that she lost her dad. Now, you know, as she was a teenager in high school, it became hard on her. In college, it's hard on her because she, she is sad that she missed out on that part of, I think, the upbringing, the wisdom that her dad would have shared. He was an amazing man, just a, a gift to humanity. He loved people. And so that's my my saddest thing selfishly is that I wasn't be, I wasn't able myself to have him on earth long enough with me to kind of grow with him and continue to learn from him. Cause that's why I fell in love with him, especially after, um, you know, going through that cancer treatment, I had a hard time connecting with young men because I had gone through so much and I had such this zest and this love for life and, and wanting to just understand the meaning of life further and beyond what <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you want to talk about deep things and then want to play peer ball pong <laughs> yeah that's, like, that's, that's exactly what it is i just couldn't do it i was like I, it's not working for me so people a lot of times would judge like oh why is she with this older man i'm like i don't know i love him like he's he loves me he adored me like and i adored him and i love that word adore and in fact Soon after he died, there was a nun that had come into town to do this talk. Her name was Sister Briege McKenna. And after I heard her talk was when I started to transform and, and really to start growing and, and to work through this. And I did. And I got much stronger. And, you know, after some time, uh, it took me about a year, though, I felt like I regained my my vitality and my authentic happiness and joy and life was back. You know, there's always moments when you are sad. And I think when you're sad, you're just reflecting on your own loss of that person you love. But you never lose sight of those special moments. You know, you still embrace them for the rest of your time here on earth. So yeah. it's a very difficult time. So, you know, I guess fast forward and I went back to work over time. My heart actually did get stronger, which was very, very interesting. So they believed that that biventricular pacer that they had put in in 2007 finally started to kind of work. So in 2009, my, my heart function actually improved to 30% and then even 40%. Oh, okay. great. So I went on, finished my residency, even did a fellowship in hospital medicine, became a hospitalist. Like I went into hardcore hospital work, did great, loved being a hospitalist, loved that adrenaline and that that investment into helping people in the hospital. And I was pretty good at it because I was 
patient for so long, yeah. I, I could kind of really grasp onto it. So enjoyed that. And then in 2015, things started not to go really well again. I started to get very dizzy when I would drive and have some near passing out episodes with any exertion. And then in 2015, 2016 is when at Mayo Clinic, they had said, hey, Dawn, would you consider coming in and kind of redesigning the breast center where we do high risk you know, breast cancer assessments and we do cancer survivorship? Would you like to kind of restructure that program? I said, oh my gosh, this timing is perfect because it was so hard to be in hospital medicine, being on call, working those long hours, and this would be more of a traditional eight to five kind of job. So I mm -hmm. took that opportunity. And as part of that opportunity, I piloted the integrative medicine and health program at Mayo Clinic. So it was amazing. It was just like, yeah. you know, God looks out for me. He gives me this perfect opportunity at the perfect time when I knew I wasn't going to be able to sustain that hospital practice much longer. So I, I went forward with that. I partnered with one of our administrators, Michelle Leake at Mayo Clinic, who's just an amazing woman. And we designed this integrative medicine and health program specific for breast cancer patients. And it was built on a foundation of lifestyle medicine. So it was amazing. So I would do the lifestyle medicine consultations for the patients. I had an acupuncturist that was in the same hallway as the oncologist, as a radiation oncologist, is the cancer surgeon. So it was so wonderful for patients to be able to come in in the same place where they would talk to their oncologist about chemo is where they could talk to me about whole person wellness. They could get acupuncture. We had a massage therapist that was there and we had a mind body therapist that was there. So it was really, it is really whole person healing. So it was just wonderful. In 2016, it was September of 2016. I was given the opportunity to present the success of this program to the leadership team at Mayo Clinic. And I remember I had a really busy clinic morning. And I was in a hurry, right? So I'm like rushing down to the steps to go to this very important meeting that I had worked so hard to have success in this program, to try to grow the program for the entire institution. You know, why should we just keep it in the breast clinic? Let's give this to everyone. This is a great program. And as I'm walking down the stairs, Chantal, I feel my legs and they're so weak. And I was like, oh, what is going on? Like, this is weird. And you know, you start thinking of things. I'm like, did I eat breakfast? Yeah. Did you sleep last night? Yeah. Did you drink too much coffee? No. <laughs> and I got to the bottom and I'm like, they are so weak. What is going on? But I knew I had a rush. So I, I hurried to the boardroom. And I remember before I opened that heavy door, I just paused. I remember shutting my eyes and, and, and saying a prayer, just reflecting in gratitude and appreciation to have this moment kind of trying to bring like my, my like heart center, this place of stillness, just to kind of settle in a little bit. But I just felt so off. And they invited me in to go ahead and take my seat. It was at the head of this long table. And then in the distant vision, like far in front of me was the screen. And so I remember I had to hold the mouse and try to see the cursor on this distant screen. And it was like just holding the mouse with so much effort. And I couldn't coordinate my motion at the mouse with the cursor on the screen. And as seconds went by, that mouse got, it, the, the cursor got more and more faded. And the people around me in the room got more faded. And my last conscious memory was the woman sitting next to me was her red nail polish. And I remember it was a little bit chipped. Like it was so weird. And I remember yeah. thinking, huh, and that was it. 
And the next thing that happened was the most, was one of them, was one of two of the most amazing experiences of my life. And so I get chills all the time. I am just like this goosebump person. I love that because it's like these aha moments. I think they're so good for our immune system. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is such a beautiful experience. So I remember being in this place of, of darkness. It was very dark. It was still, and the temperature was cool. And I remember there was a slight breeze. And I, I remember this feeling of almost like a piece of hair being in my lipstick. Like, like I, so I had this sensory awareness during this experience. I felt as if my body was like suspended. And, and to this day, you know, I, I'll get there. But I felt like my body was suspended. And I, it was like as if God, I, I mean, it was like there was this divine presence, but it was as if God was holding me. And I remember having like this total acceptance. I felt totally safe of this place of complete unknowing, which is mm -hmm. totally unlike me. Because I love to be in control and I love to know everything. I don't like surprises. I want to know now. But not then, not in that moment. It just felt so safe. And I was in no hurry to go anywhere. There was no white lights. But I was just so comfortable. And I guess I was in that space for about four minutes is what they had, is what the time had shown. And then what happened next was this huge, like rush of energy started to come through my body. Like I remember this feeling of warmth that just came through my body. And then it was like this thump, like this big thump that kind of bounced me up onto my butt basically. And that was my defibrillator. So I had had a, a cardiac arrest from what's called fine ventricular fibrillation. So it actually was like a flat line. Like the wow. defibrillator wasn't able to successfully shock my rhythm because it was so flat and there was no bumps in that sequence for the defibrillator to grab onto. So I was down for about four minutes. And so it's truly a miracle. My electrophysiologist at that time was in Mayo Clinic Rochester, Dr. Samuel Azurevatham, who is one of the most amazing men an incredible doctor. I've been blessed with so many good doctors who have taught me to be a better doctor, but what a gift to humanity this particular gentleman was. And, you know, he said to me, he's not really quite sure that my defibrillator is really why I came out of this rhythm. He said he thinks it may just have happened. So it may have just truly been a miracle, but I think so. really a miracle was that experience. And that experience really taught me never to fear death. Mm -hmm. Because I think that was more or less a near-death experience, whatever it was. It was a time of awakening and a time that my life really took this pivotal turn because you know what happened was after cancer I kind of forgot you know I forgot what that vital existence felt like I was young you know and then Charles died so so I just kind of forgot what the essence of life was I still embraced life but it was just a little different and you know with heart failure you're so sick you don't look sick on the outside but you're so sick on the inside and you're so weak and so you're just drained but this kind of taught me to really tune in to, to life and every single morsel <laughs> that life offers you. Just had being young, I just didn't know the preciousness of embracing that existence that I had learned, that teacher of life that cancer was. So after this near-death experience, it kind of taught me to really pay attention to that deeply. And so then in December of 2019, I was listed for heart transplant. 
And, you know, I remember when they had listed me, they had felt that I would get called immediately. So I was still at home at this point. I wasn't admitted to the hospital. We tried to have me admitted, you know, we tried to keep me listed so I could still stay at home and be comfortable. And then I just continued to get more and more unwell. And would you believe I was actually on the list for over a year? Wow. And not one single call. How did that feel? It was so scary, you know, because all of a sudden you're getting more and more sick. And all along we had kind of thought, oh, well, when she's listed for transplant, she'll probably get called pretty quick because she's small. There's not a lot of small people in the United States. I'm 5'2". I'm very petite. And so they didn't think it'd be challenging, but there was just no match for me. Mm-hmm. And so a year goes by and I'm getting more and more unwell. And this was during COVID now. So things are getting more sticky in terms of who are we going to transplant? Who are we not going to transplant? Is it even safe to transplant and lower someone's immune system? And then, you know, around November of 2019, I get, or I'm sorry, November of 2020, I get COVID. And so my family's like, oh, I, we all thought I was going to die, you know, because that's when COVID, there was no treatment, there was no vaccine. You just assume you get COVID, you die. That's just what happens, especially when you have advanced heart failure on a transplant list. But, you know, we know that people who are on whole food, plant-based nutrition and live healthy lifestyles, that they seem to have less severe COVID symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so I really instilled 100% naturopathic philosophy to my uh, COVID syndrome. So I fasted for, for many days. Um, as long as I was febrile, I did not eat any food. I just um, consumed, uh, I guess I was having a little bit of vegetable broth during that time just to give me some, uh, you know, a little bit of electrolytes. But otherwise, I just fasted and I rested. And I had Mayo Clinic had this really amazing program where it was like care at home, where I had a home care nurse that would zoom in with me four times a day. Yeah. They mailed you a scale. They made you a blood pressure cuff, pulse oximetry. They'd have you do all of your vitals remotely. And so I had this very close care. It worked out great. So I beat COVID, but that pushed me down even further. So come January of uh, 2021, they had to admit me to the hospital because I needed supportive care for my heart failure at that point. I had just gotten too sick. And so I had to wait a few weeks in the hospital, still no call. And then it was February 4th that I, my daughter came to visit me in the hospital. We had had dinner together. I walked her to the elevator because she was in high school. So she was on her way home. She couldn't stay in the hospital because of COVID rules at that time. And I saw my cardiologist standing at the nursing station. I thought, oh, someone's getting their heart. That is so incredible. And I remember thinking, I wonder what that's going to feel like. And he turns around. He's like, oh, Dawn, I, I need to speak to you a moment. You just <laughs> knew. <laughs> weird feeling. It was so awkward. And this was Dr. Parag Patel. And again, these, these amazing doctors that I've had over this can over this, this journey of my various health issues, it's just been so, so remarkable. And I remember him and I were walking down this corridor in the hospital to my, to my hospital room. That was like the end of the corridor. And it was his most awkward walking. I didn't know if I should hold my arms like this, put my arms up my hips, <laughs> you know, talk, not talk. So neither of us talked. It was just like the awkward walk down the corridor. So we get into the room, he sits down, you know, I sit down and he's like, Don, I knew what he was going to say next. We have a match. And then all of a sudden, what you would expect would just be this joy. Like you're like, yes, finally. You just feel, you just step back and, and you don't know how to respond because you know that within 
a day or two or whenever the surgery is going to happen, that every memory that your heart, that your, that your own heart that you were born with once held was going to be removed. Mm. It's so hard. To pro- and then for me, it was even like, here I have memories of my husband and my daughter, and it's going to be removed. And, and I'm going to get a stranger's heart. And someone has to die for me to get this heart. And so it was just such a delicate process of trying to think through that. And it's nothing you can think through until they actually tell you. You know, you would think you'd be prepared, but it's different until they actually tell you. And then the next thing he shared with me is I have one more thing to let you know. Your heart donor is an IV drug user and she has hepatitis C. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm thinking, how is this possible? I'm like, God, give me a break. Don't do this to me. I'm not strong enough for this right now. (laughs) And you know, I struggled with that. And the reason I struggled with that is during that time that I was being listed for transplant, I had a colleague, a good friend of mine who's a psychiatrist. And they came to visit me and they're like, Dawn, do you really even want a transplant? I'm like, "Uh, I don't want a transplant, but I need a transplant. And the next thing out of their mouth was, aren't you worried about your personality changing? And I was Mm -hmm. like, I never thought of that. And he's like, because that happens. And I'm thinking, oh. So that's why I'm thinking, okay, IV drug user, personality changes. Do I want to take this on? And so I just had to think about it. I just had to process it, you know? And then it was a very short period of time that I just had this feeling of knowing that, you know, this feels right. This is right for me. And all of a sudden it was like, I rallied and I was like, this is great. You know, it's going to be okay. And so the next day was February 5th. That's when I was scheduled to have my transplant because they have to prepare so many things. There's so much that goes into this whole process. Once they know you're getting the heart, it's like this whole battery of tests you have to go through. And this was in the middle of the night that I had to go through these tests. So it was pretty exhilarating. It was pretty darn exciting. Then you're excited. You're like, oh my gosh. I'm going to get my life back. Like I am moments away from getting my life back right now. My life is dependent on these IV medications that are pumping my heart to live. And soon I'm going to be on my way to living again. So it was fabulous. So they get me that morning. They take me down to the, uh, to the operating room. The team is just so amazing. I remember my mom had had this rosary made for me and I had that in my hand. And they let me keep that in my hand during the time of the anesthesia induction. I remember seeing my surgeon who was a dear friend of mine, and we just had eye contact. And I remember that I had no fear. You trusted him. I trusted him. And, and I just was, I knew everything was going to be okay. It was the first surgery in my life that I didn't have fear. And I was just talking to a woman the other day, and she was very scared about what surgery was going to be like and about going under anesthesia. I said, gosh, I'd had so many moments like that until I had had my heart transplant. And it was the only time I had this complete acceptance that knowing that everything was going to be okay. And rather than previous surgeries, me shutting my eyes before anesthesia and just praying, God, please let me wake up. Please let me wake up in this turbulent manner. This time I remember just shutting my eyes and just giving gratitude, like just such heartfelt gratefulness to my donor and my donor family. And I knew that this heart was right for me. And for me, it was like, gosh, I mean, this is an opportunity. I don't know what her heart went through in her life. 
but I know I've been given a beautiful life and I know I love life. So I'm going to just give her so much love and introduce her to this beautiful life. Maybe she did drugs because her life wasn't beautiful. Maybe she was numbing something that was very disharmonious in her life. So for me, it was this opportunity to just really nurture something, this gift that I was about to be given. And what a beautiful person to check that box to even be an organ donor, you know? Mm -hmm. And we know that in the United States, over 95% of people believe in organ donation. Everyone believes it. I mean, if people think, oh yeah, it's a great thing, we should help a life, but only about 58% of people actually check the box and sign up to be organ donors. So it's important that people actually take time to register and share with their family that they wanna be an organ donor because you know, if you die, why do you want to take your organs into the ground? Or why do you want to cremate your organs? Don't do that. If you die and your organs are viable and you're able to donate those organs to someone else, I mean, there's nothing more significant than transforming the finality of death into life, vital existence, meaning, and purpose. Mm. You know, and every transplant patient is like this. It's not just me. Everyone that gets this gift of life, they have this beautiful perspective and nurturing of their soul and giving back to humanity. So it was really amazing. So I had a few complications after the surgeries one would expect because of the radiation I had had. So it was a few days after my surgery that I woke up and this was the most remarkable experience that I've ever had in my life. And this I have never lost hold of because I learned from cancer never to let go of that incredible feeling you feel when you feel it and hold on tight for the rest of your life. So I held on to this. So this is cool. So I wake up from anesthesia and I remember feeling my body warm and it was warm for the first time in 18 years because of the heart failure, you're cold. Like every part of your body is always chilly feeling, but I was warm. And then I remember my heart beating, like I felt it beating. And my heart was beating against the bed and I could feel it going against the bed and then back out and then against the bed and back out. I'm thinking, oh, how am I ever gonna sleep again? Like this is powerful, <laughs> this is so cool. It was beating so forcibly and like in sync with my essence that my hair was like brushing against the crisp white sheets and the brushing of my hair was like creating like this harmonious sound and I remember this feeling and I still like I have it right now and it was like every single cell in my body was like oscillating at this like vibrational frequency that was just it's perfect. And that's how I live. Like, how cool is that? So it has been worth cancer. It's been worth heart failure. It's been worth the transplant because I get to live like this. And I, I kind of joke, I wish I could just put a little, put me in a little pill and give it to everyone and, or sprinkle it like <laughs> dust. And be like, have some of this existence dust. Cause oh my God, my life is so beautiful. It's just amazing. So I just am so grateful. Wow. And they give you so many medicines after transplant that a few days went by and I had this total transition all of a sudden. I became this angry person. I was mad. I was all of a sudden mad that I got an IV drug user's heart. And I was all of a sudden mad that I had had a transplant. Mad I had, it was weird. Like I don't get mad. I, I'm just not an angry mad person. There's not a morsel in my body that's ever experienced this before, but you're on this high dose steroids, right? And so I think that was 
kind of triggering some of this. So I went to bed that night and I had this dream or like this sensory experience that was so powerful. And I was in this dwelling place. So when I woke up in this dreamlike state, I'm in this dwelling place, it's this block building. And it was kind of chilly in there too. And there was a window and I remember waking up in this dream and running to the window to see if my car was there, my car wasn't there. And I turned around, there's a single chair in this building. And to see my purse was there, my purse wasn't there. And then to the right of the chair was this door. And so I walked towards that door and outside the doorway there was these long blades of grass. So I remember kind of crawling out the doorway into the grass and crawling kind of up this hill in the grass. And the grass was like grasping my leg. So you feel those long blades of grass. You know, the grass is kind of sticky and almost cuts your leg. Mm -hmm. That was the feeling in this dream. Like it was just, my senses were so in tune. The wind was blowing and the air was just very, very crisp. And I remember flipping over after some time and looking at these cumulus clouds in the sky and these clouds were moving over top of my head. And as I looked out in the distance, there were these families, children, mothers, fathers, these people that were just dancing, playing in the fields. It was this beautiful dream of love and unity of humanity. And then all of a sudden a voice came over me in this dream that said, Grace. And I woke up at that moment and I had just complete peace, stillness, and like just this unconditional love for every single thing that existed in my life. It was beautiful. And I knew at that moment that everything was going to be very good moving forward. So I looked at my phone because I always would listen to instrumental music while I would sleep in the hospital. And the song playing on my phone at that very moment, the name of the song was Grace. <laughs> so it's like, oh my gosh. So I couldn't fall asleep after that. I'm like, this is way too much. This is like so cool, right? So. I opened up my computer after a, a bit of time to check my email because I figured I'll just do a little work. I love my work. <laughs> and I have this email waiting for me that is titled Full of Grace. Oh, wow. You can't make it up. You can't make this stuff up, right? So it's just like one sign after another. And I mean, you know, the meaning of gra grace is really, you know, a virtue from God. And I just feel it's just been such a gift. This heart, I named her Grace, as you would imagine, has been such a teacher and such a gift to just really use the gifts we're giving. You know, I, the meaning in life is to find our gift and the purpose in life is to use that gift to serve others and to serve humanity. And so that's really my goal and my mission is just to continue to grow in this gift I've been given and to be able to just connect and share love for others because I think that is needed in the world right now. So it's just yeah. been truly, truly amazing. Wow. So now it's two years and a half, right, since your transplant? You know, it's interesting. It's been exactly two years this Sunday. Two years, two years. Wow. Yeah, February 5th. So it's been an amazing journey. And, you know, the first year after transplant is, is tricky. There's a, lot of, it, it, there's a lot of adjustments to medication. So it's a bumpy road. I did have some, some complications during that time. But I feel there's a distinct difference between my journey post-transplant and many other transplant patients where 
I, I'm very vital. I, I don't feel sick. I've had bumps in the road that we've had to work through, but I feel my whole food plant-based nutrition is what really sets me apart. And, you know, when I was listening for a transplant, I told my colleagues, I'm going to run a marathon one year after transplant. They're like, okay, Don, you mean a half marathon? I'm like, no, I want to do a full marathon. They're like, okay, sure. And so after my <laughs> transplant, when I took those first steps, I mean, I was like two people had to help me stand up and I had a total walker I had to lean on. I couldn't even walk. I had such atrophy in my muscles that my calf muscles were like indented inward. There was no, I was so profoundly weak for so long. It took me quite a while to get that strength back. And when I say a while, I mean a few weeks, not, not beyond that. But I worked really hard in the hospital to get my strength back. While in the hospital, I worked really um, hard with the nutrition team to make sure I can continue that whole food plant-based nutrition. Um, and I did both of those things. And so in the hospital, I just would push it. As soon as I'd wake up, I'd walk. I'd take a break. A few, if, an hour later, I'd walk again. So I kept on walking in the hospital. Walk, 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 walk. Went on to cardiac rehab and really exercised. I'd go home and exercise. So got well uh, really, really quick. And, and I realized, hey, let's try to see if I can run a marathon one year from transplant. And and see if this plant-based nutrition can help me get there. And it did. So I ran a full marathon on my one-year transplant anniversary. And running is, is kind of a metaphor for my life, right? And I love running. I, I love that experience. It's just a moment when I can really savor. I feel my heart beat. And I feel like I'm one with grace. And you feel your feet kind of hit the pavement. And, and that vibration kind of oscillates up your body. And when, when I do run, I just love sometimes to shut my eyes and just feel the, the experience as a whole. So it's been really nurturing. Something I loved doing as a child. It's something I couldn't do for 18 years. So I could just keep running all day long <laughs> if I had time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it's been, it's been really exciting. Really, really exciting. But the whole food plant-based nutrition has fundamentally, I feel, been why I have just thrived during this post-transplant time. I absolutely agree. Um, for many, many reasons. And uh, now you teach, at, so your work now is lifestyle medicine at the Mayo Clinic and you support uh, cancer patients, right? That's exactly right, Chantal. So, you know, when I started that uh, integrative medicine program at Mayo Clinic, it was set on the foundation of lifestyle medicine. But at that time, I actually wasn't board certified in lifestyle medicine. But of course, I had my naturopathic training. At undergrad, I studied nutrition, exercise, physiology. So my whole life has been, you know, training and learning to be that sort of a doctor. I didn't have that formal uh certificate that would board certify me. And I found out about the American College of Lifestyle Medicine when I was listed for heart transplant. So I had some free time. So I became board certified during that time that I was listed for mm -hmm. transplant. So it worked out wonderful. And I really feel that that board certification, it helped me to be the healthiest version of myself. Because though I really knew how to do whole food plant-based nutrition pretty good, it wasn't as much as I needed to tweak it now. And I feel like I've really perfected it and for my own nutrition, but perfected it in a way that's fun and in a way that just empowers and energizes me and in a way that I can share that enthusiasm and excitement with my patients. So it's really exciting. And in fact, I, my patient last night, my last patient for the, for the day yesterday was a woman that's had complete disease reversal with whole food plant-based nutrition of her lupus. And I rarely see women who are not cancer patients, but she's very high risk of breast cancer. So that's why I saw her, but she's had such success with even reversing autoimmune disease. So, you know, this whole food plant-based nutrition can help so many different 
ailments. Number one, let's not even prevent it. Let's not even try to reverse an ailment. Let's try to prevent mm-hmm. ailments from happening in the beginning, you know? Yeah. And so we know that it really is the healthiest diet when it comes to prevention of all diseases, especially those chronic diseases. And, you know, we know the Journal of the American Medical Association in June of 2022 said that the number one cause of chronic disease is diet, is nutrition. Yeah. And it's so sad to think that our youth, our kids, 67% of their diet is ultra processed foods. Yeah. And that's directly linked to dying and chronic disease. So we really need to focus on the whole food part of it, number one. You know, I have some people that are like, oh, there's no way I can give up fish. There's no way I can give up eggs. Or there's no way I can give up having a little bit of chicken. I think that's okay. You know, I think we need to meet people where they're at and just slowly try to engage them with increasing the amount of healthy food in their diet, but number one, replacing all processed foods. That's where it has to start. Because I have some other people that I've seen over the years who are vegans, right? But they're vegans who are eating French fries and ketchup. Yeah. And that's not gonna add to your vital energy, no. So it needs to be that whole food component, you know, food coming from the earth. And I feel like I have such high vital energy. Like my energy is through the roof, right? And I think a lot of that's my nutrition. And, you know, I especially like to uphold a lot of sprouted foods in my diet and a lot of raw foods. Uh, So I think that the nutrition has been just so fundamentally critical for that. And I see that in my patients as well. So about 90% of what I do with my patients is that education with the whole food plant-based nutrition. And I feel so fortunate that Mayo Clinic is supportive of this for their patients and they do see the importance. So there's a high demand for the visit and it's just me right now that does yeah. the whole food plant-based you know, nutrition as a physician. We have integrative medical doctors, but I'm really the one that's kind of in this space. But since I've kind of started this practice, you wouldn't believe the interest. There's about 20 other doctors that now want to also and are in the process of becoming board certified. And mm-hmm. 43 of our residents mm-hmm. are now doing a training curriculum that I started through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So it's a lifestyle medicine residency curriculum that runs parallel to their training. And they're able to do this training alongside of whatever training it is that they're doing. If it's family medicine, internal medicine, physical medicine, rehabilitation, surgery, whatever training they elect at Mayo Clinic, they can learn this additional uh, treatment modality and strategy to help optimize their patient from whole person health. And so it's really exciting to learn and work with our learners as well. So, And so needed. Um, you know, Dr. Clapper does something similar for medical students. Um, he says before they get into pharmacopoeia. <laughs> Oh no, pharmacosis, sorry, because, you know, they they don't, it's like, let's get to them before the pharmaceutical company goes and says the only way, um, and it's, um, I love him, it's just such a great man, and I love that you're doing that, because also, you know, I think it's changing a little bit the image of the Mayo Clinic, because everybody thinks of Mayo Clinic as this very uh, groundbreaking um, therapies, and, uh, you know, very new technologies, but I never heard anybody talk about them as lifestyle medicine. And now, obviously, they, they are embracing it. And you are like the best spokesperson for it. So I'm happy to hear. Oh, thank you so much, Chantal. Yeah. You know, we've actually been in this space for over 20 years. Oh, wow. it, it's not in, in the integrative medicine space, I should say, not necessarily in this whole food plant-based space. But I'm so excited because the opera, and I'm so excited to be well. 
because now I can really embark upon very meaningful research in this in this area. So my hope, and I just submitted a grant proposal to look at the impact of whole food plant-based nutrition. I've partnered with this amazing company uh, called Nutrition for Longevity that is actually part of Walter Longo's Prolong company. And they are making medically tailored nutrition that's whole food plant-based, no oil for this particular study and for my patients. So we have this, you know, convenient way for when women are undergoing these treatments um, for these, you know, aggressive cancers. And so the study will be the importance of a whole food plant-based diet during chemoimmunotherapy and the impact on quality of life, the impact on maintaining weight, but most importantly, the impact on that tumor microenvironment. Can we actually improve the chemoimmunotherapy effect, which you and I both know, I think it's a definite yes, we're gonna see that because we know that the gut microbiome really governs a lot of the immunologic response. Mm -hmm. And if we have a heightened immunity that's gonna go and engage immunotherapy more, we should see improvement. And so increasing the fiber, increasing the diversity of the plant foods and eliminating animal products and ultra processed foods is the key to that, not not probiotics. Yeah. So it's gonna be super exciting to see the results. So I'm really hopeful that we get funded for this study. This is the tricky part though, you know, and I love Dr. Clapper and, and all the fathers of lifestyle medicine, Dr. T, Caldwell Campbell, Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Ornish. They've really set the path, but now it's time for those of us in lifestyle medicine that are newer in our careers to take everything they've done and continue this forward and do this meaningful, important research and work hard at getting it funded. And the American culture of lifestyle medicine has been very, very uh, beneficial at really helping us find some of this grant funding that's available. So fingers crossed it gets funded so we can get the study off the ground this year. Amazing. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. I was thinking the other day, I'm like, I'm talking to these amazing doctors who had amazing careers, you know, such as Dr. Clapper and Campbell. And and it's great, but they are aging and, uh, you know, they don't necessarily practice um, medicine anymore, per se. They do still talk, um, do talks and they, I mean, Clapper, Dr. Clapper does practice on, on telemedicine, but um, the others are not really, you know, they they, they write books and they, they are contributing uh, through their knowledge, but they are aging. And I want to see a, a younger population of doctors and even health coaches, you know, they need to take the next step now because you can study health coaching like I did it was brilliant but for me it was like this is a great course foundation to learn so much about different doctors out there and and lifestyle medicine I've never heard about it before but you have to carry on your education because there's so much to learn all the time nutrition is a very growing science all the time so you want to understand you know you can't go by what you learned in the 60s (laughs) like you have to know what's going on now and so we need this young blood coming into the um to the to the system i agree and you know how do you operationalize it you know it's a fast-paced life and Mm -hmm. people want to go through that drive-through line and eat behind the wheel of their car but it's kind of re-evaluating that and self-care, like you have to give time back to yourself. You need to give time back to your family. You know, spend time in the kitchen, prepare this food. I mean, gosh, there's so many amazing cookbooks out there now. The Be a Plant-Based Woman Warrior is one of my favorite. Plant You, I love, I mean, all these cookbooks, the food is so colorful. The food is so beautiful and the flavor is so terrific. And that's been really exciting with my patients. I mean, it's cute. I share my cell phone number with many of my patients uh, because I get so excited to get their messages. But one of my dear patients just shared a picture of her refrigerator with me last night. (laughs) 
She's like, look at my refrigerator. The plants were like falling out of it. I was like, how do you shut the door? It was so cool. And she just had her recent CAT scan. She has metastatic cancer and it's showing improvement everywhere. So it's really, really exciting. Again, and she feels good. She just got back from skiing with her family. So here she is, metastatic cancer on pretty hardcore chemo, doing her whole food plant-based diet. And she's having improved disease, but she's still having quality of life. And, you know, I, I really think we need to applaud Dean Ornish because Dean Ornish's approach to care, it's not just the whole food plant-based nutrition. And in fact, if I meet with a woman who I, I sense that that whole food plant-based nutrition is causing a lot of turbulence, I really back off. Like, I, you know, I really try to get them to get to a place that this is something that's going to add to their overall meaning and empower them and give them autonomy over their disease. But if there's a lot of stress around it, I really want to find out why. And I find that, you know, a lot of times it's because they feel as if they're deviating from their cultural norm. And so I think there's nothing more rewarding than when you take those cultural recipes that meant so much to you and your family and to try to make those in a healthier way. So that's why I, that's why I really think it's important to meet with patients one-on-one. I know a lot of institutions have been very fruitful with doing group visits, but, but I still do all my visits one-on-one and I love that because I really get to understand the dynamic of where the patient's at with that nutritional component and make sure that psychologically they have happiness and pleasure with their food and it's not a negative. And then also to go deeper and beyond that, you know, we need to look at how much they're moving their body, movement and exercise, time in nature is so important. We all have stress, but how are we managing our stress? And then that spiritual core and that purpose in life. So it can be a little bit uncomfortable to navigate through that, but I personally feel very comfortable going through my journey Mm -hmm. to talk about that and to really make sure that we are embracing the essence of growing ourselves spiritually as well. It's just not about some of these more superficial things with nutrition and exercise. We need to go a lot deeper than deeper. that to help that whole person wellness. I agree. And, and and Sophia following in your footsteps, I, I believe she's now in college. Yeah, she's in college. It's interesting. So, you know, I do my best, but sometimes when I see on, on her little uh, charging, it's Chick-fil-A. Oh, I shouldn't say that, but you know, these various restaurants, I'm like, you got a fruit cup, right? Or you got... She's normal. She's eating a normal diet, but she's kind of paying for it a little bit, you know? And I, I think she's now starting to realize, wait a minute, this past year, year and a half, I've been away from home. I'm not eating as healthy as I used to. Do I feel as good as I used to? You know, does my skin look as good as I used to? So I think she's starting to kind of analyze some of this. And she is going into medicine as well as she would like to. And so I always send her various things. But I'm letting her do it on her own accord. She's going to have to learn it on her own. But I I really am excited um, for the time when she finally does realize the importance of it. I don't think she's quite there yet. But I'm letting her just kind of figure it out. You know, I, I, I don't want to push this on her. It has to be something that she wants. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, I mean, she obviously grew up on a plant-based diet at home. So that is important. And I think she has the foundation. But sometimes, you know how you can get rebellious when now you have your freedom and you also want to fit in. Like she's a new in a new college, in a new space, in a new living environment. So I think for her to be like the healthy plant-based food girl might be, you know, intimidating. But I really think that having the foundations you gave her will allow her to come back to it. Because as you said, you feel that you don't feel great. And sure, when you're 20, you can feel great, you know, whatever. But, <laughs> but it will catch up with you. And then you're like, oh, 
I, I know what to do now. So having the foundations, I think is the best thing because a lot of the clients I see, and it, the problem is because they don't have the foundations, they find it even more challenging because they grew up with a certain, um, you know, kind of way of eating. And it's uh, it's very emotional for them not like to eat certain things and not to let go of that. So, um, and they don't really know how to do it, right? Like, you know, well, what does it mean? Like, what do, what do you mean I have to eat more of this or more of that or raw salads? What? Like for them, a salad is like a couple of tomatoes with lettuce and it's like no no that's a boring salad and the, you can do stuff as much better <laughs> it's uh yeah a lot of conversation <laughs> it's true and you know what's really difficult is she goes to school in alabama and there are not many healthy restaurants there yeah. and that's been part of what she struggled with and so it's really you know trying and, and so it helps me to be a better doctor because i see her struggles and so i can kind of help to even ask some of those questions for my patients, depending on where they live geographically. You know, I also notice that I have a lot of, <clears throat> the majority of my patients are women, just because breast cancer affects primarily women. And I am a woman's health specialist. So majority of <clears throat> my patients are women. I only have a few men in my practice, but when women say, yeah, it's just so hard because my family doesn't want to eat this way. I'm like, oh, we want this to be for the whole family. You know, we want everyone to try to adopt this pattern of eating. So it's learning how to, you know, talk through that and how can this be whole person wellness for the whole family is, is so yeah. key and important. And women love hearing that like, oh, I didn't think about that. You know, you're right. This is something that would be really important for my kids. And, you know, it's trying to retrain that palate to appreciate those foods. It was so cute. My nephew, cutest little boy in the world, had come to visit me and his family's on a little bit more of a standard American diet just because that's what they know, right? That's how, how my cousin was raised. And so when he come to visit me, even my mom was like, Don, you may want to get some snacks in for Jack. I'm like, no, 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 we'll do the healthy food. So, so cute. So I had dates and I put pecans in the dates and he put it in his mouth and I was like, uh-oh, let's see what he's doing. He's the cutest boy in the world. He goes, mm. it was his response, he loved it. And then I was like, okay, Jack, you got to try this. So I took some frozen cherries and I thought, and I put a little almond extract in it. He'd love that too. So, so it's really cool. You know, it's just, I think when we kind of approach children in a way that we're excited about it and we make it tasty and, and something new, they love it. They're open to it. And so it's important to train their palates young. And yeah. so he really enjoyed that. So it was super exciting. When my daughter was home for college last time, you know, there's that, crazy girl super greens they have like the different chards in there and when you crunch on them it's almost like you get a sense of hydration so her and her sweet friend reagan were over and i'm like hey you guys taste this and they're like okay so they take a piece they take like mm, that's really good my whole container was gone they ate the whole thing of <laughs> like, this is great i took a picture <clears throat> so you know i think it's just introducing people to these different foods and, and how wonderful it can be and the beautiful color <clears throat> One thing I always share with my patients are the Stokes sweet potatoes, those bright, vibrant purple. And, and I encourage my patients to take pictures of their food and post it on social media so their friends and family can see how healthy they're eating and, and help the, the friends and family understand why it is that they're getting through their treatment so well. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really a, a great time and it's a great time to be a part of this movement because people are interested in this space now. No one I wants know. to be sick. We've never seen such high numbers of chronic disease. And chronic disease that's occurring in young people, right? Yeah. Because we grew up in this fast-paced world. We are the generation of the TV dinner, and we're paying those costs with very poor health as a result with the rise of chronic disease. So the only way to, to combat this is to improve how we live. 
I agree with you. I have one last question. I'll let you go because I know you have to get to your clients, uh, to your uh, to your patients. Um, what you got married again, right? You you now married again, and uh, is your husband also plant based? You know that's interesting. Not as much as I would like for him to be, but he's transitioned. So for him, it's it's breakfast. He does one hundred percent plant based. He's very focused on trying to get his vegetables and fruits at that time. He is from the south, and so again, it's that it's that you can't force this on people. They have to want that change themselves. But I wish, you know, because it is a little bit challenging when you see that those people you care so much about aren't quite as interested in that themselves. Mm -hmm. But I've learned not to preach. I've learned just to lead by example. And when they want to enhance their vitality and well-being in a way that you see as special and important, then they will do that. But, you know, sometimes when our mortality has been questioned, that's a big wake-up call. And that's a big invitation to, hey, I got to change something. But without that, many times people are not as motivated to change. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I'm, I'm really trying to work through to figure out. And, you know, I, the majority of my patients are getting that wake-up call. They have cancer. Yeah. They have the internal motivation to want to live to be their healthiest versions in themselves. But when I do have a patient who just comes to me, they hear what I do, and every once in a while I will still see a patient that really doesn't have a lot of disease. They just want to live healthier. Or they want to lose weight. They come to me because they want to lose weight, but they're not really sick. Those are the people that just to me don't seem as enthusiastic about making some of these changes. Sometimes they want a magic bullet. Yeah. What pill can I take? Or, you know, what shortcut can I take? So that's kind of the space that I'm really working through right now is how can we help those people? And so it's been a little bit fun that I have some family members, both distant and immediate, that struggle a little bit with the enthusiasm over this whole person wellness, even though they've seen my like triumphant story, you would think that that would be enough to change the world, right? <laughs> but not everyone gets that buy-in. So, so I'm working on that. And, and I think that we can't force it on anyone, but those interested, I'm so excited and so proud of you. And not only is it good for our bodies, it's the kind thing to do. Yeah. You know, it's eating animals. It's just, it's not the compassionate thing to do. It's not the good thing to do for generations to come. It's not the good thing for our, our climate. Mm -hmm. So for so many reasons, this way of eating matters. Mm -hmm. But I just love that I'm able to be kind of this beacon of hope that, gosh, if you take care of yourself, amid disease, during disease, during these intense treatments, you can attain your vitality. And you can even regain some of that if you don't have it at the time of your diagnosis, if you live healthier. And I can promise you, 100% promise you, after you're done with treatment, you can flourish. Yeah. And it's easy to do it. It's not hard and it's so fun. So I love being in this space. I love the journey that my life has taken me on because I think I'm able to connect with people in a way that they trust me a little bit more because I've been there, done that sort of a thing. So it's been great. Yeah, thank you so much, Dawn. I mean, this is such a great story and um, a true testament of miracles. And I think if people find themselves not having faith, they really need to listen to this because you can't, deny a higher power when you listen to things like this 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 is not random nothing is in life but you know when with a story like this I just I see the hands of the creator like I just do and um and I love that you have so much purpose and and as, as, as I said at the beginning throughout adversity a lot of people get discouraged but you actually just allow this to give you even more purpose and doing the things that can help people and yourself in the process and I I find that really inspiring. So thank you so, so much. 
Thank you, Chantal. It's just been such a pleasure spending this morning with you. And I know it's late where you're at, so you're probably ready to go to bed. Oh, no, 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 it's not that late. It's actually, it's what, one o'clock p.m. No, no, I'm not, I'm not that late. We are, I'm, I'm in Europe. I'm not in Asia. <laughs> We're good. Oh, wonderful. Okay, good. For some reason, I was thinking when we had set this time that it was actually going to be quite late your time. So good. I'm happy that this wasn't going towards the later part of your day. So. Oh, no. That's what I was saying. This is why, like, it's the earliest one I've done because normally I do, like, the three, four o'clock in the afternoon up to seven o'clock for the, the 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 west coast so i'm like this is so early i love it <laughs> well, it's so funny i was gonna message you but i woke up and be like we can start now <laughs> so this is wonderful i'm always up early so anytime i get to engage with someone with as beautiful of a personality as you and, and energy oh, as you, you i welcome it so this has been a great morning thank you yeah i time. appreciate it too thank you so so much and we will definitely speak soon all right, Chantal, thank you. Bye, bye, Don. Thank you, Don, and thank you everyone for staying on for this beautiful episode. I really hope you loved it and you learned so much out of it because I really feel that there is such a lesson out of this episode, such a lesson out of Don's story, and I really hope it inspires you to be the best version of yourself, never to fall victim to any circumstances, but rather shine through adversity. And of course, guys, if you want to reach out, Dr. Don, all the links are in the bio and you can check her story at the podcast. I mean, she's amazing. So as always, please like, share, and make sure you review our podcast so we can keep on growing. And I shall see you next week. Bye.